1: Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Political State Podcast from the Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder here in the Oklahoman's podcast studio, and joining me for this week's episode is uh, Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat, Senator. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate yeah, it. thank you for having me. Well, hey, I I want to uh, dive in a little bit into your into your background and kind of your history, and this is the first year in, in leading the Senate. But uh, we've got a legislative session starting in a matter of days from from when this episode posts, and so I want to I want to start with this question. Um, when you think about this next, com- this upcoming legislative session, they all have, you know, their own feel and tone and, and that kind of thing. What would make a successful session for you? If we if we get to the end of May and you look back, what what's it going to take to be successful in your eyes? Uh,
0: jokingly, not to go into another special <laughs> yeah, session, yeah. Uh, but in order to keep our word, keep our commitment on the education funding, uh, there's a lot of rumors going around that that was one-time funding and we aren't really going to be able to meet our obligation. Nothing could be further from the truth and we plan on keeping our commitment to educators and keep trying to push the pedal to, to, to continue to improve in that area, we've got to restore trust in the in the legislature. And we've got a lot of work cut out for us, but I, I have a real sense of optimism among my colleagues right now.
1: Yeah, and, and there is this kind of sense that this, not that any session is ever easy, but that it it may be a little easier this year or some of the major challenges from the last few years related to the budget aren't, aren't on the table. How much does that change the dynamics, do you think, in the next few months? You
0: know, attitude is everything. So when you walk in with a, uh, having an optimism, a sense that we can accomplish things, that the tougher days are behind us. I think we're going to accomplish a lot this session. Now, a lot is going to be on government reform, budget transparency, like I said already mm-hmm. on education, criminal justice reform. Uh, but I think that the The optimism is a huge deal because you've been out there the last two years. So one legislature, two years, Mm -hmm. plus two special sessions. It was getting, you know, people were getting on each other's nerves. It was getting very tense. It was tough with the three-quarters vote requirement. Uh, You were pitting party against party, members of Republican and Democrat Party fighting each other. It wasn't a fun place to be, and Mm -hmm. we're not necessarily elected to go have fun, so yeah. that didn't bother me, but it was—it was there was no collegiality about it. I really believe that we've turned the page. There's not—I I don't want to be naive. We're still going to have fights. We're still going to have disagreements, but I think there's going to be a whole new attitude about it.
1: Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's go back here for a moment, um, and uh, let's go. You know, almost a year ago. So you're referring to the the teacher walkout. The legislature had passed through the teacher pay raise, but the, the, a few days later, the, the teachers walked out of the classroom and held held a two-week walkout and rally at the Capitol. Um, you talk about not being a real fun place to be for lawmakers, and and there was this kind of sense that, especially by week two, I remember a lot of lawmakers weren't wanting to show their faces, and you know I don't mean that as a criticism necessarily, but there was there wasn't a lot. Of, I mean maybe there wasn't much to say, kind of like the government shutdown right now. I mean what what else can you keep saying? I this is what I remember. Um, I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like you were one of the more visible uh, lawmakers, kind of willing to hey invite the media into your into your office. Have a frank conversation. Um, it seemed like you were frustrated, but you're a pretty kind of even keel guy, at least from what I've yeah. my appearance. What was going through your mind at, at at that moment? What was it like for you, you know, being in leadership, um, feeling like you guys have had delivered on a promise, but at the same time, you know, there's still a lot of frustration from educators that were at the Capitol.
0: I am pretty even keel all the time. Uh, there, there's a joke that the, my face, no matter if I'm angry or happy or whatever, never changes. So I understand that. That's uh, both a criticism and a compliment. Some people give me. But the the walkout, you know, we we passed it right before the walkout started, so there was a hope that we could have addressed some of the issues, but the the pressure had been building for a couple Mm -hmm. years, a lot of pent-up frustration. I was having not only press in my conference room daily, I was having about 40 teachers circle through Mm -hmm. every 15 minutes, and I could see that there was a lot of misinformation out there, uh, that, you know, we had the hotel-motel tax, that in order to get it through the senate we had to get the the house to agree mm-hmm. they're going to remove that we had not vetted that we didn't have the votes for it and a relatively small part of the the puzzle was impeding us from being able to deliver on the teacher pay raise so you know the house passed it with that in there and then we had to have them take it out that caused a lot of confusion mm-hmm. we tried to be extremely upfront and say the senate can pass this but not with the hotel motel tax and i think that caused a lot of people to there was already distrust, and mm-hmm. that just fed into the distrust of "look, they're already pulling the rug out from under us." I think we're beyond that, but educators are still, you know, still talking about class sizes, more funding to the classroom, salaries not uh, where th- a lot of people want it to be, including myself. But we've made a huge step. Uh, Six thousand on average has relieved some of the pressure, but more importantly, it's improved morale uh, and. uh, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to turn the, turn the tide. We were number two in the region on pay until Colorado passed their pay raise. So Mm -hmm. now we're back to three. It's an ever moving target. We just can't allow ourselves to atrophy to where we get to the bottom again.
1: Yeah. Well, you're right. There is that teacher pay raise component, which was approved before the walkout. But then when teachers came to the Capitol, they said, Hey, we're looking for an increase in classroom funding that that's an important element of this as well. Um, did you feel like the legislature kind of understood that dynamic? I mean, I know you can speak for yourself, but maybe even your body. Was there an understanding from lawmakers that – because some were like, well, hey, we gave you the pay raise. Why are you still here? But that – you know, a teacher's job, yes, the pay is important, but also having those resources in the classroom. Do you think the legislature was aware of that? I think they did. I think that uh, – Ben, you were up
0: there. So we had gone through so, so many iterations to just try to deliver on the pay raise that I think there was a frustration that – I. I it's not fair because teachers are not in our spot and we're not in their spot. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a gulf of understanding of each other's jobs and and what we can get done. But with the three quarters vote uh, with state question 640, there was a little bit of frustration on legislators' part because they realized we had done everything we could possibly do to get mm-hmm. to get the revenue. And then immediately saying, hey, that's not good. We need to we need to stay around for this other. It wasn't a frustration of the request. It was a frustration of knowing that uh, probably couldn't get another three-quarters vote to be able to do something like that.
1: Yeah, and you talk about, you know, the the you know lawmakers said, hey, this was such a historic step we took. And I, I think in the moment, for some teachers, they probably felt like, Lawmakers were patting themselves on the back and there was still work to be done. So I kind of get the dynamics there. Um, But it was a historic in terms of, you know, being able to pass through a a tax increase, which is by design, not easy to do. The budget seems to be better. And I I don't want to get too far ahead because I do want to spend a few minutes talking about in more detail this upcoming legislative session. But. Um, I know Democrats are still saying, hey, we need to increase more taxes. Republicans are saying, hey, we're going to have a a better improved budget situation. What do we do to make sure we don't get into the budget messes we've seen over the last few years? I mean, I know the economy was a part of that, but how do we avoid getting, you know, four or five years from now, having multiple special sessions again and lawmakers, you know, battling over how do we find more money when we need it?
0: Well, it's, it's being good stewards of the money we have right now. So the first certification in December was $612 million above last year. That estimate, By all accounts, it's going to be much lower when the the true certification in February comes through that we actually base
1: the budget on. How much lower? You say much lower. Do you have an idea? I mean, what do you mean by that? Well,
0: when you look at obligations, so you look at ad valorem reimbursement, you look at uh, some corrections issues we're having to deal Mm -hmm. with, uh, a multitude of issues, it's probably going to be a lot closer to a standstill, uh, but not a standstill. We'll have a, a couple hundred million more dollars than we had last year. Most of it is already obligated in in healthcare. You know, we had the loss of funds for OSU and OU med centers that mm-hmm. we're now having to pick up the tab on. So we'll have more money. We're in a much better spot. We're not coming into a $1.3 billion hole or $800 million hole. Uh, so zero is a huge improvement over where we've been before. We'll probably be in the two to $300 million range. That's a pure guess on my side, but mm-hmm. I'm looking at revenues coming in, what the oil and gas... Uh, in the budget, uh, what we're basing those revenue estimates are. We're coming under on a barrel of oil. We're coming over on the MCF of gas. On the
1: balance, though, so I think it'll be a couple hundred million more dollars. So, I mean, even w- whether it's flat or, or a couple hundred million more, I mean, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of de- uh, re- requests out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, education, you know, DOC, I mean, it, health. I mean, so there's a lot of, there's still a lot of need out there. Um, so even though we may not be in a hole, I mean, how are we going to see some fights over over funding this year? Because there is, you know, even if it's flat or just 200 million, that'll go quick, um, you know. And there's still going to be a lot of a lot of other agencies that are saying they, they need to make up for the cuts of the last. Several so years.
0: the vast majority of time, I've been in the legislature since 2011. We've been trying to dig out of a, a hole. Um, so I haven't really experienced the surplus side as much. We had one or two years there where we had some. So I really don't know what to expect. Legislators who who came before me said it was always harder in a surplus year uh, because everyone's fighting over uh, a finite amount of additional money, and everyone's priorities are important. Uh, You know, criminal justice reform requires some money for diversion programs, but you also have the people who are already locked up in DOC, and they've asked for over a billion dollars in new money. Education obviously is going to ask for more money. Healthcare authority, the ever increasing cost of healthcare, not just on that side, but on the insurance side as well. Uh, but you know what? I, I tell those colleagues uh, from years past, I would much rather be having this fight over uh, how do we divvy up extra money than the fights we've been having over where do we have to cut, how can we minimize pain. Uh, so I'm excited about the challenge of trying to divvy <laughs> it up, uh, but the, the needs are probably going to always exceed the the revenue. Uh, we're not going to go out there and, and start collecting a lot more revenue than we can spend. You can always spend it. We just got to make sure that we're trying to keep in the core areas of government and, and prioritize education and infrastructure and health care uh, and reforms on correction. And, and I think we'll have a very successful year doing that. Yeah. What, why, why are you senator? Why did you decide to, to run for office? It's a good question. <laughs> uh, I was involved in politics. Uh, got involved in the pro-life movement when I was a student at OU took on a scholarship called the cortez Uing Fellowship at the University of Oklahoma. really changed my trajectory. I was either planning on going to law school or med school um, and uh, got hooked up with my uh, U.S. House member at the time, Tom Coburn, who ended up being a U.S. Senator. Did an internship with him. Really just wanted to go out to D.C. because I couldn't afford to go out there on my own. So I applied for this scholarship and uh, really changed the trajectory. I saw that good people were involved, they can make a a difference. I came back, uh, changed my major to political science and history, uh, graduated there, and I've been running campaigns in Oklahoma ever since. Mm -hmm. Uh, Helped run Dr. Coburn's race in 2004 for U.S. Senate. And then from there, I I was asked to go run the program for the Republican Party known as Victory, which get-out-the-vote effort. Mm -hmm. And I I started to realize that my own state senator, Todd Lamb, was going to be elected lieutenant governor and started thinking about you know I'd like to do this mm-hmm. uh, and did it put together a grassroots team there were five of us in that uh, Republican primary no Democrats filed that at that time and it was it was a, a fun experience you know you never know what you're going to get into I was reminiscing with, with uh, some of my workers uh, co-workers the other day uh, you never think about the things you get involved I didn't run to get involved in in. Department of Human Services and Foster Care and Adoption, but I found myself right in the thick of that really early on. Uh, the ME's office here in Oklahoma City was, was uh, they kept saying, you know, it's not a safe work environment. It's not dignified for those humans that are uh, being examined there. So I just went and dropped in on them. Never thought I'd find myself in the middle of a, a freezer at a med- medical examiner's office watching an autopsy. Uh, When you run for office, it's those type of things. I was in Tulsa last week doing the same thing at their ME office. But, you know, I've always been a fan of the American experiment and Republican form, not not the big R Republican, but, you know, the Republican form of government and people having representatives to make decisions. Uh, It's been a real joy to try to make a difference in people's lives. And I, I think as long as I can to, do that, I'll still be involved.
1: Yeah. How, how'd you kind of make your way into leadership? Was that something you knew right away that you wanted to be involved in? or
0: No, I fought leadership when I first got <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, so uh, I don't recommend it for any of my <laughs> colleagues that are listening now that I'm the, the pro tem, but I, I t- actually took on the pro tem my first session. Great guy, Brian Bingman, um, tremendous leader of the Senate, but. I disagreed with him on an issue, and I was too naive to realize that I wasn't supposed to fight him on the floor. And uh, he said, hey, if you're interested in getting more involved, he's the one that got me more involved in Department of Human Services, the Pinnacle Plan and all that. And when I got there, I didn't think there was a – I'd probably be the head of the Senate. Uh, But as I got more involved, just kind of organically moved up.
1: Yeah. And so now you find yourself, you know, leading the Senate, uh, entering your first year in that position. Um, what's your, what's your leadership style? I mean, kind of what's your, your message to the caucus behind closed doors? How do you conduct yourself as a leader of, uh, of this body?
0: I'm very blunt, uh, very, very direct, and very uh, much encourage disagreement with me within the, within leadership meetings and caucus, because I don't want to go onto the floor of the Senate or out into a press conference and not realize that I have disagreement in the caucus. So if there's disagreement, I want to know about it. Not to squash it, but to make sure that I'm on the right track uh, and to argue it out. I love to argue. So uh, you know, some leaders like people to rally around their ideas, and don't get me wrong, if we have a caucus agenda, which we'll be releasing shortly as our caucus, I'm gonna be pushing as hard as I can to get that done. But I actually encourage disagreement, uh, encourage people to challenge my way of thinking I love, like I said, I love arguing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but leadership style, we, we've been disjointed some. Um, we've always had an agenda that has been three or four pages long, and when it's that long, it really doesn't say anything. It says everything, and if it says everything, it's nothing. Yeah. So I've encouraged my caucus to have a very brief four- to five-point agenda uh, that we can actually judge ourselves on and, and hold each other accountable uh, and be judged on.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I know one of those items for you is is uh, government reform, uh, you know, the first bill from the Senate, yours, um, that would uh, kind of create a kind of a congressional budget office type, you know, entity here. Tell, tell me a little bit. Yeah,
0: about LOFT, that. Uh, Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency. Uh, it's, it's in, in the most important job we do as a legislature is pass a balanced budget. We're required by the Constitution to balance it, but we fly blind a lot of times. We have tremendous staff, Uh, that are are bipartisan fiscal staff downstairs uh, from my office. And they do a really good job, but they're very dependent, uh, just by the nature of the beast, of what the agencies tell them uh, or what OMES, the Office of Management and Enterprise Services, that's really a tool of the governor's office. Legislature, you know, with the divided uh, way we do government with executive, uh, legislative, and judicial, you can't concentrate all the information in one one of those entities. And right now, the health department's a great example. Uh, last what was that last fall into the winter, when they came to us and said, "If you don't appropriate thirty million dollars, side note, we didn't have thirty million dollars, uh, we will not be able to make payroll. And so we had no information at our disposal to to verify or to, Reject that notion. So we had to actually borrow from the next fiscal year to be able to appropriate that money, which is a very dangerous thing to do and something you don't want to do unless you're in a crisis. So, the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, you, you tan them out to the Congressional Budget Office. That's a good way to think about it. But it's also a performance uh, measurement entity. So they get us real numbers, they get the House and the Senate real numbers. A lot of times when you go into budget negotiations, you spend a lot of time just trying to reconcile whose numbers are right. Yeah. So we're operating off the same sheet of music. Not We may not come to the same conclusion, but we have the same information at our disposal. And then when you pass a program as a legislator, you hope it's successful, you want it to be successful. The people who have a financial stake in it or a um, job security stake in it tell you how great it is, but you really have no independent way to go in and see is it hitting the target we were trying to hit. So I envision LOFT being not only a really good tool for the appropriators and being able to make budget decisions with objective data. But also after the fact, after we pass the budget and have priorities in there and measurements of success, they can tell us, yeah, you're hitting the target, or you're abysmally short of the target.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of talk about government reform this year. You know, obviously from yourself and and some of the objectives like you just talked about. We also have a new governor who's talked quite a quite a bit about it. I know he's only been in office for for a couple of weeks now. Um, I, how how would you kind of assess what you're seeing from Governor Stead so far, and kind of this um, you know wanting to bring this kind of CEO mentality you know in, into government, um, increase the power of the executive branch when it comes to agency um, you know directors and hiring and firing and that sort of thing. How would you kind of assess what you're seeing right now from the new governor?
0: Well, I'm excited he wants to take that responsibility. You know, when we were doing the Department of Human Services uh, revamp, myself and Representative Jason Nelson and Sean Burge and Wade Ruslow and Pat Omby and others, a uh, real bipartisan group, and we were saying, hey, the governor should be able to control hiring and firing of the director of DHS. A few people in the room said, why would the governor want that, you know, responsibility? That's yeah, they can take credit, but mostly they're going to take blame. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited that he wants to shoulder that responsibility. When when you run for office as a governor, you talk about what you're going to do in the various areas of state government, and you get there, and under Oklahoma's antiquated model, you really don't have a whole lot of control over it. And so we need to be able to give the governor enough um, leeway to be able to lead mm-hmm. or show that they're an abysmal failure and be – sent out of office. I think Kevin Stitt's going to be a huge success. Uh, I think he's got the leadership skills to be able to turn it around if we give him that authority. A lot of people talk about, and you use the word power, uh, too much of a concentration of power in the executive's hands, one person's hands. But we have a divided government. You're not supposed to have, it in my mind, a divided executive against itself. Legislature, by design, since the founding of this nation, has been divided against itself in the House and the Senate with the exception, obviously, of Nebraska. But it, it, that's the only part that's supposed to be s- divided against itself. The executive, when you pass the law and they're trying to enforce it and deliver services to constituents, having a multitude of agencies that are have very little accountability to the governor's office I don't think it served the people of Oklahoma well at all.
1: Yeah. When you look at his staff, and, and he's still making decisions, but uh, the bulk of his staff has been hired. Um, he's got a lot of, he's got some former lawmakers. He's got some kind of political insiders that are kind of managing the policy shops, kind of thing. Some people with similar resumes to yourself that have worked, you know, with, with U.S. senators and, and the like. He also has a couple new positions um, that are kind of, uh, you know, spearheading his, you know, kind of customer centric philosophy and kind of running, wanting to bring more efficiency, uh, to state agencies. Also, you know, like I said, that kind of customer mind mindset of, of, you know, whether it's digitizing, you know, your point of contact with government, that kind of thing. I'm curious, you know, from someone inside government, how successful do you think this can be when it comes to, you know, some of the, you know, the private sector people he brought in does that excite you or do you have concerns or what's your assessment of that?
0: That excites me. I, I've seen various people come in from the private sector in different forms of government. Sometimes they leave very frustrated and not able to, to accomplish what they want to accomplish. But I really think having the leadership from the governor's office, it's not just one in, one individual coming into an agency trying to do it. It's, it's a, the whole uh, executive branch. He's trying to approach it that way. You're, you're going to have various degrees of success depending on which position it is and the personality of those people and how do they get along with uh, the people that, that will be serving under them and those different agencies and how cooperative are they, uh, you can have under the current system a, a, an agency really just thumb its nose and say, we're not going to do that. We're going to outlast you and we know you ran on that, but we really don't care. We've been doing this before you got here and we're going to be doing it after you leave. Having some people coming from outside hold these people accountable, I don't want to um, uh, vilify the agency. There's a lot of good, good, People working in state government. But to have leadership from the top in the governor's office willing to take the responsibility, shoulder the responsibility, redirect, reprioritize is a very welcome uh, development for me.
1: Yeah. Uh, let me, you know, this first month, there are this month before the session starts, this time when, uh, you know, bill filing deadlines are happening and, and these bills are coming out and, um, you know, lawmakers. You know, can file the bills that they want. You know, sometimes they intend it to become law. Sometimes they're just trying to make a point. I'm curious, as a member of leadership, and you don't have control over these bills directly. Um, is that a tough time? For, I mean, do you see? You know, I don't have any bills particularly in mind. Well, maybe I do. I mean, you know, I know like Senator Scott's. You know, one that was kind of controversial. Uh, you know, about prenatal care for undocumented mothers. D- does that hijack the message at all? I mean, kind of. What are you thinking as as a member of leadership during this this time of? you know, bills that get a lot of attention that may not be going anywhere, but they still kind of hijack the narrative. I mean, just kind of what's your perception? Yeah,
0: right? it's obviously frustrating. I'm not even talking about one bill in particular, but, uh, you know, uh, Representative Inman and I were, were really good friends. He's now former representative, I guess, in college. Uh, but uh, we've obviously had our disagreements at the legislature, but he posted something on Facebook, I think it was yesterday or the day before, uh, as the taping of this, saying that he had an axiom that the, the bills that got the most ink had the least amount of attention in the legislative process. Uh, and it's I've found that to be true. A lot of times the ones that are really out there that get the most attention, the most calls from uh, voters in your district, constituents. Reporters. Reporters, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the social media post, really don't have a chance of going anywhere uh, most oftentimes. And so it's it's frustrating because the bills you're trying to do to really Help people to to make government more efficient, to get more money to the classroom, to help with criminal justice get less attention. But that's the nature of the beast, you know the 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 old adage that planes landing on time safely and getting there, leaving the gate on time and landing don't make the news. But when one of them catches on fire or whatever, that's that's what catches the 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 attention.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you describe yourself as a a blunt leader. Is it does your role to you know do you tell any of your your colleagues take knock it off? Or is it just something you got to kind of let the process well, work itself out? You know, or?
0: it's important to allow them. They, they all were elected independently by their constituents. We all have the same number of constituents. It's important to allow them to have some level of independence. But yes, my bluntness doesn't, uh, doesn't know an end <laughs> on uh, uh, communicating with members. They can take my advice. They can take my words or they can do their own thing for the good of the uh, Senate Republican caucus. Now, I lead the, the entire Senate, so I'm not hyper-partisan on what I do, but, you know, obviously I'm a Republican. I'm part of the caucus. Uh, I try to remind them that they're part of something bigger than themselves, and they can hijack any momentum we have on our overall goal if, if they get out there and get
1: too much of attention on something that is uh, not likely to go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, uh, a day before we're, we're sitting here having this interview, um, so at a, at a budget su- summit, uh, Senator Thompson was asked about Medicaid expansion. It's a big uh, uh, point for Democrats right now and Republicans have been have been very resistant to it. Um, but the senator said that that is a conversation that maybe we should have or he's willing to have. I'm curious your your stance on this. I mean, what's your message to your caucus? Democrats are going to push that this year. Are you supportive of Medicaid expansion or are you least willing to have that conversation? What does that look like to have that conversation? I-
0: I'm willing to have the conversation if it's It's not just pure expansion, uh, just uh, outright acceptance of uh, Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. We have Insure Oklahoma. There's some opportunities there to expand some coverage. One of the real problems with the way the Affordable Care Act was, was drafted is it had a maintenance of effort requirement. So anything that you were doing prior to its passage, you couldn't curtail in order to expand in another area. And it really hamstrung uh, some states in their flexibility because we were talking about at the time, 2011, 2012, when I first got in there, that, uh, you know, hey, we may be able to expand to some of these people that fall, the working poor. We may be able to help there if we curtail some of the other programs, reprioritize dollars, but we were not allowed to do that under the maintenance of effort requirement. The conversation is obviously the, the the minority party is obviously coalescing around that as something that unites uh them. Healthcare is an extremely important issue and I won't shy away from the conversation. I don't know if a, a, a solution has been found yet that I'm gung ho about, but, but I'm always open to, to new ideas of how do we increase people's coverage and make sure, especially in underserved areas, that, that we can get
1: health care there. Could you envision an expansion esque bill? Be, be know, Would you be okay with there being a vote in a committee over that? Or I mean, I don't know if you've seen one yet, but I mean, is that something that, or are, are you, you just completely against that idea of actually coming to a committee vote? I never say never on okay. a vote. I'm, I'm not going to say
0: we're never going to yeah. have a vote on this or that. If if it, I think there's a lot of uh, emotion tied up in both healthcare and education in that discussion. There's a lot of misnumbers of some of the hospitals that have closed. It was exclusively because of we didn't expand. Medicaid. There's some other factors that go in there that that are happening in states that did expand or didn't. Uh, there's a real consolidation within the healthcare industry nationwide right now. So there are no easy answers. But yeah, uh, I'm open to the discussion. I don't. I haven't read through every bill yet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm not going to just have a decree from on high saying no bill shall be heard that does that. We'll, we'll let the co- committees vet that out.
1: Yeah. We, we just got a few more minutes left here. And I, I wanna, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, you talk about health care and education. A lot of these issues right now, there's this there's a there's a big kind of rural-urban divide. I mean, you talk about these hospitals that are closing some rural areas. Um, you know, the Republicans this last year in the election had gains, and they were all mostly in, in the rural areas. This kind of political-urban-rural divide continued to increase. You're an urban uh, lawmaker though. Um, are you, is it getting more lonely as a Republican in Oklahoma City or just kinda, uh, and you lead a caucus that's mostly rural right now. Uh, you know, Not to say that a, you know, a city slicker can't understand rural issues and I think you've got some things in your background that say that you can, but uh, just kinda how do you handle that dynamic?
0: Yeah, there's a big ongoing fight between my, my friends. I'm from Catoose, Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I like to say that's rural Oklahoma. They say it's suburban Oklahoma. <laughs> when I grew up there it was more rural. There, there may be an argument to be made yeah. it's suburban. but. Uh, you know, lonely, no. Uh, I still walk my neighborhood, uh, meet my constituents. There's still, there's a lot that's changed in the electorate since I first got elected. Uh, the, the number one issue by far when I first got elected and was knocking doors was property tax issues, the ever-increasing property taxes in Oklahoma County, uh, seemingly ever-increasing. Not seemingly, really, yeah. <laughs> ever-increasing. Uh, now when you knock on doors, uh, I had a re-election in 2016, um, and I've knocked doors a lot for other people in, in 18. Uh, every door is about education and how do, we, how do we do something there or a federal issue yeah. that we have no control over. Um, so, no, I'm not lonely. There is a, a balance to be had there on the rural-urban. Uh, the needs are much different. We talk about uh, what's happening here in Oklahoma City on um, their plan to, to close some schools and stuff to maximize the, the dollars. That's not an issue that that is going on in rural Oklahoma right now. So there's a little, we talk past each other from time to time, but we're all, the vast majority of us have moved in from some much smaller community into Oklahoma City, especially in the area I live. My kids go to Deer Creek. We live in that area. Um, So I don't feel lonely. I I feel pretty welcome. I've always been one that fits in 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 many categories.
1: Yeah. And and don't get me wrong. That area is a very, is still a pretty Republican area Um, and a lot of the kind of the, where Democrats did make some games was kind of more in the, in, the, in the inner city, but kind of the Northwest Oklahoma City but area I, as
0: well. I, I'm concerned, though, uh, really am, uh, and I'm trying to figure out ways along the Northwest Expressway corridor uh, up northwest. Education is a key component of whether or not we keep our neighborhoods strong and whether people still want to live in that area. Uh, my entire district, people move there for educational opportunities. You look at Edmond, you look at Deer Creek, you look at Putnam City North, you look at Bethany, you look at Piedmont, all of which feed, uh, have uh, uh, kids that go to those schools. They all move there, one way, shape, or form, for the educational system. So. This, this is a very near and dear topic to my heart and to the heart of my district.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a big issue in the House race up there oh, yeah. as well uh, for people up there. So, well, uh, Senate President Pro Tem, Greg Treat, thank you so much for your time. Um, good luck in this uh, new session. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again. Love to have you on the episode uh, here maybe in a few weeks, see how things are, are going on these efforts. But uh, maybe – like I said, I don't know, easier is the right word, but a, a different tone to this next legislative session. And uh, good luck trying to figure out what it's, you know, I guess you'll get a chance to see. Is it really harder to have a surplus or at least a flat budget versus a whole? Versus a but uh, I guess you'll get a chance to figure that out. So good luck.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll try, we'll try it out. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Yeah, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. You can find this in every episode, on your favorite podcasting app, also at newsok.com, the Oklahoma's YouTube page. For The Oklahoman, I'm Ben Felder. We'll see you again next week.